The following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. Let's pray and just ask God's blessing on His Word, on our study of it, and our coming and sitting under its authority. Let's pray together. Father, we ask now that Your Spirit would descend in a fresh and a new way, that You would speak through Your Word and apply it to our hearts, that You would humble us and engage us, And that we would learn from you today. Father, we want to know what it means to follow your son. We want to know who he relates to. And we want to see in our own lives if that's that's in us. We would have those traits of the ones who Jesus so intimately related to. We praise you and we give you glory in his name. And through the power of your spirit. Amen. We've been looking together, as you know, through this uh, wonderful series of the Gospel of St. Mark, looking at the life of Jesus Christ and asking the question, what does it mean to, to be a disciple or a follower uh, of the servant king? And, and bringing those two words together because he is a servant. It said that he became lowly, that he came to serve and not to be served, but yet he was a king, and that means he's a king different from any other king. And there were some kings and monarchs throughout the course of history who would every now and then uh, would dress like paupers, and they would go out and they would relate in their minds to the people who they ruled, but they would always go back in the evening to the castle. And there were always rules in uh, the lives of the monarchs and of the royalty that you couldn't marry a common person. Well, Jesus comes as a different kind of monarchy, a different kind of royalty. And he comes and he says, not only am I going to leave the beauties of heaven, I'm going to take on the form of a bondservant, of a slave, of a servant, and I'm going to live among them and be among them, and I'm actually going to marry common people. I'm going to relate my life to them in such a way that my bride comes out of this world, that I'm coming into its lowliness, I'm coming into its destruction, into its chaos, to bring it light and to bring it hope and to bring it life. And that's what I've come is to serve. I'm the king and I can come and I can rule and serve in that way, in that beautiful way. And now he invites us as his followers to come and to learn about him and to follow him and to be like him. And this morning, we're going to be looking at a passage of Scripture uh, in chapter uh, 12 of Mark's Gospel. It's just a few verses, just a simple interchange. Very interestingly, the, the main central figure uh, of this story, Jesus doesn't even talk with her. He doesn't engage her. It's the impoverished widow who comes and gives her uh, Widow's mites, if you would, just the smallest of currency and denominations in that day. And she gave them in the treasury. And Jesus says, I relate best to that woman. Over and against all these other people who he saw that day and walked by and encountered. And so we're going to learn, why did Jesus relate so well to this impoverished widow? And are we like her, that he would relate to us in that same way? We want to learn from him and be like him. So let's hear from his word this morning and allow it to minister to us. This is God's very word coming to us from Mark's gospel, chapter 12, verses 38 to the end. 
And in his teaching, he said, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for pretense make long prayers. They will receive their greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all who are contributing in the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. This is God's word. May he add his blessing to the reading and hearing of it. Amen. Jesus has just come into the city days earlier. We saw him walking on the road last week with James and John and the other disciples. And James and John, you remember, ran up next to him and said, uh, Master, Rabbi, would you give us anything that we ask? And Jesus said, what do you want? They said, we want the power seats. We want the seats of the left and the right. We want to be established as the greatest uh, in the kingdom. And Jesus says, you have no idea what you're asking. And then the other ten were indignant with them. It says they were incensed, not because James and John were so arrogant that they would ask the question, but because they got there first. And they wanted to be able to do that with Jesus most likely and ask for those seats of power in the kingdom, for they had this misunderstanding of who Jesus was. And Jesus explained to them again, I'm going, I have set my sights on Jerusalem. And it says that he was leading them. He was on the road leading them. And he said, you're to follow me, and you're to follow me to Jerusalem. And ultimately, within Jerusalem, you're to follow me to the cross. Because in my future is a cross. And therefore, in the future of every follower of Jesus Christ has to be a cross. Not just his cross, but our own crosses. We've learned other places where he said, each of you has to bear your own cross. Pick up your cross daily and carry it. And so we're, we're asking these questions of what does it look like to follow Jesus? So we went into the city and we called that entrance the triumphal entry, Palm Sunday, where uh, the, the people who knew who he was, the people who celebrated him, who knew Messiah was coming, uh, they threw palm branches on the ground. They put robes down. Uh, he came in on the white donkey's colt and he entered into the city. And then it says that he went into the temple and he turned over the money changers' tables uh, and he was teaching uh, about what God's house is supposed to be and really asking the question, are you willing to allow God to overturn your tables? Are you willing to have everything in your world upside down and turned over and to really understand who Jesus is and that he's enough for that and for you? And it says he left the city and this now we pick up uh, in chapter 11 and chapter 12. He's re-entered back into Jerusalem. And he's heading towards the temple. And the interesting thing about Jesus was as he's going to the temple, I don't know, there's sometimes when you or I, we're walking along, we don't want to engage other people. And so we just sort of walk, head down, looking not to the left or to the right. But Jesus was walking and he was constantly engaging people. It was actually, he was picking fights, if you were. He was picking arguments uh, with classes of people. And we're going to look at them in just a second. And he was going along to the temple and then ultimately gives this teaching to the disciples about the widow. Well, for us, we have to ask the question. If I'm going to follow Jesus, I need to know everything there is to know about him. Because I'm supposed to be like him. 
I need to know, uh, I need to know who he relates to. I need to know what, what he believes in. What, what, are the, what are the non-negotiables in his life? What are the values that he holds? Uh, how is it that he presents himself day to day? How does he live his life? It's not unlike what we would do in any of our normal everyday lives. When I was a young banker training to be a lending officer with what is now Bank of America, I was assigned a man who was my mentor, David Torres, played on the national championship soccer team for Clemson in 82, I think, was when they won it, or something in that realm. But David was sharp. David knew his stuff, and he dressed well. And he knew how to talk to people. He knew how to engage uh, the executive VPs. He knew how to engage uh, the leaders in the community. And I would watch David. uh, And I would look and I went, okay, he wears these kind of shirts. And so I started and bought those kind of shirts. And, And he wore these kind of ties and not these kind of ties. And he tied this knot, not that knot. And his suit was this way. And if you had on a dark suit, you had on these kind of shoes. And if you had on a light suit, you had on these kind of shoes. And you never wore seersucker after Labor Day. And you knew not to wear white bucks after Labor Day. And you had certain things that you learned and you were around. And I watched him as we were at cocktail parties and different things of how he handled himself. How he talked. Even to the fact where he would, if he had a name tag on, it would be on his right lapel because he would extend his right hand and wanted your eyes to go right down his arm to his chest to see his name. And I watched him. And I learned how to be a better banker because I watched everything there was to know about David Torres. Jesus is saying to us, watch everything about me. Know all of my nuances Know who I oppose and know who I draw near to. Uh, Find out who I relate best with and hopefully you're in those categories of individuals. And you need to know who he opposes because you don't want to be in those categories. And so this week, we're looking at the widow and her gift. But what we're really looking at is who's the kind of person that Jesus relates best with? Who's the kind of person that Jesus relates best with? And the question for you then has to become, and for me, am I in that category? Do I hold those same characteristics and traits of the kind of person that Jesus is drawn to? Or am I in one of the other camps? And then also, looking at the people who Jesus is opposed to, am I opposed to those same kind of people? Or do I actually like hanging out in those groups and groupings? So let's ask that first part. What are some of the types and characteristics of the individuals that Jesus opposed? Well, you can find it on a simple walk. Jesus walks into the city and he engages almost every single group of people that he opposed in his entire life and ministry and continues to oppose in his, entire, in his life and ministry. And he begins by walking into the city uh, in chapter 11 and he's greeted with the chief priests and with the scribes and with the elders. The to-do of the to-do, the top-level folks within the church of the religion of the day, these were the movers and shakers and the power brokers of the day within the church, and Jesus engaged them. And then it says that uh, in his conversations with them, uh, they were challenging him and pressing him and pushing him. And so it says that they, that is the the scribes and the elders and the chief priests, they called in another category of people because they wanted this other group of people to catch Jesus, and they called in the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were the ones who were the most southern and religious of all. Uh, they, were, they were a good northeastern Roman Catholic. Uh, 
They went to mass. They went to confession. They went uh, to church every time it was open. They were a good fundamentalist southern person who went to church every time the doors were open. They were there. They knew the Bible. If you tried to do a sword drill with these guys, they could pull it out and said it's on this scroll and this place. And they knew exactly. And they wouldn't just quote you that verse. They'd quote you the entire book. They knew it all so well. But yet they had turned their religion into a means by which they gained heaven. And their morality as a means by which they understood themselves. And they looked at others and said, I feel better about myself because of you. My goodness and my righteousness is what is going to get me into heaven. And so this group Jesus encountered in the Pharisees. And then the Pharisees were with another couple of groups of people who came along. And there were the Herodians and the Sadducees. And the Sadducees were an interesting group of people. They were more secularist. Uh, they were culturally uh, evolved, I guess you could say. They didn't believe in a resurrection and all of those simple things that a simple-minded, primitive culture would believe in, a life after death. They needed to have empirical evidence, a scientific method, if you would. And they tried to trap Jesus by going to Jesus and even going against themselves. And they said to Jesus, hey, what, what about giving of marriage in the afterlife? And Jesus said, it's, it's kind of funny. You don't even believe in marriage yet. This is your question. You don't even believe in an afterlife, I mean, and this is your question. And he challenged him. And so there was this group of people who were over here, and they had sort of mixed in this culturalism into their religion. And interesting, the Sadducees and the Pharisees didn't like each other, but boy, they could get together on one topic, and that was their, their hatred of Jesus, of who he was. And then there was this other group of people that Jesus had a problem with. And he doesn't explicitly say it in this passage, but it's the wealthy. Earlier, he had told the rich young ruler, sell everything that you have. Get rid of all of your other saviors, all of your other idols, and come and follow me. And it says that the young man went away sad. And then the disciples came to him and said, Jesus, how is it that anybody could be saved? He said, be careful. It's easier for camel to go through the eye of a needle and for a wealthy person to enter into the kingdom of God. And then when he was sitting at the treasury and watching, I think it's fascinating. One of my favorite pastimes is just to go and watch people. Just to go sit down at Caligny and just sort of watch people uh, on a sunny summer's day. To go out into Old Town Bluffton and just to watch folks. Just to observe who they are. And Jesus was doing the same thing and he observed the wealthy. And he said the wealthy don't get it. And that should sort of linger on us, almost like a pall. And it should be heavy because I've said before, this isn't going to be a sermon about wealth and this isn't going to be a sermon about giving more and generosity. It's a sermon about who God and Jesus relate to most. But in the midst of this, be careful because we live in in this part of the world and in this country and in this zip code where we have so much wealth. And it's interesting that Jesus' assessment is that wealthy folks have a really hard time getting to heaven because they don't have within their economy an economy of need. All of their needs are met. And Jesus is coming in and he's trying to rivet it down and he's trying to come down and say, you need me. You need me because you are lost. You are categorically lost. And a person who has everything goes, where's my lostness? 
I sit in my home behind my gate with my car and my pool and my memberships and my 401k and my second homes and my trips available to me and all of the accoutrements of life. Explain to me again where my lostness is. And Jesus says, it's right in the middle of all of that. It's right there. You're lost and you don't even see it. And how is it that you can be saved if you don't know you need to be saved? How can you be found if you don't know you're lost? When people say, oh, what's the greatest sin? A sin against the Holy Spirit. The sin against the Holy Spirit is this, not believing your need of the gospel. And that can't be forgiven, Jesus says, because you have to see your need. And so there's this whole category of people that Jesus doesn't relate to. He doesn't relate to those who have an intellectual knowledge of the scripture. He doesn't relate just to theologians who know everything just so they can argue it. He doesn't relate to the person who demands signs and wonders and scientific data that are going to prove the existence of Jesus Christ and all of these things. Oh, he can give it to them that he wanted. He doesn't relate to people who think that their morality saves them or people who think that all of their gifts that they have and all of their wealth saves them because I don't relate to those folks at all. So we should pause there for just a second and ask the question, do I have characteristics and traits of any of those folks in my life? And if I do, I need to deal with them. I need to repent of them. I need to repent of, you know, one pastor put it this way. It's not so much your horrible sins that you should repent of, but your damnable good works. You should repent of the fact that you fed the poor because you thought that it was going to help you get into heaven. Is feeding the poor a good thing? Yes, but it could be a damnable good work if you think that it's based on that, that you're going to get into heaven and that your righteousness and merit is based on any of those things. Jesus says, consider these things. And so we should sit for just a moment. And think about those things. So take that list. Just read through chapters 11 and 12. Today, tomorrow, this week. And see how you relate to those folks. Well, Jesus related to them like this. He opposed them. He said, I'm going to point out your wrongness in there. I'm going to point out the incorrections of your belief structure. So that, not just so I can feel better about myself, that I can win an argument. But because I want to deconstruct your worldview. I want to deconstruct uh, your false assumptions and presuppositions. And then so I can construct a new one that has me at the very center of it. And so Jesus is challenging us in this. So we're seeing who he's opposed to. But now let's spend the rest of our time uh, asking the question, but who does he relate to? If he opposes all these other people and doesn't relate really well to those guys, who does he relate to? And fascinating. In the middle of this is a woman who's not even named. She's not described as anything other than a poor widow. And it says that Jesus was sitting by the treasury. I can just imagine kicking back against the wall, legs crossed, eating some bread, drinking some water, and watching the people as they came to the treasury. And the treasury boxes of those days, uh, they described them most likely as having an inverted horn uh, that you would put your coins and all in the top of the coin and then it would go in and it would keep someone from stealing uh, into it and so it would funnel down into the treasury. And you could hear the money going in because they were made of brass or metal, precious metals. And you would hear the coins going in. And I don't know that Jesus was so close that he could see, oh, the Smiths gave $100 and oh, the Joneses gave $50 and oh, the so-and-sos gave a dollar. 
But he knew, maybe based on the sound, that here were all these wealthy people tossing money in. And it really cost him nothing. Ah, but this little woman walked up and she pulled what would be the equivalent, not even of a full penny, the, the, the currency that she used, the denomination that she used, was one sixty-fourth of a day's wage. One sixty-fourth of a day's wage. Less than what we would say is a penny today. And he said, she took two of those little things and she dropped them in. He said, that's not only all that she had that day. That was all she had. She wasn't going home uh, to a full checking account. She wasn't going home to a piggy bank full uh, of more coins. She wasn't hopping into a car with the ashtray filled uh, with coins and coins on the seat and on the floor. She wasn't going in, in anything else. She had given absolutely everything that she had to live on. And she put it in the treasury that day. And so we have to begin to ask some questions. Why? Did Jesus relate so closely to this impoverished widow? Why did he relate so closely to her? And also, if Jesus most closely related to this impoverished widow, therefore, followers of Jesus should also most closely relate to impoverished widows. We should, be, we should see ourselves like an impoverished widow. We should look and say, I need to have these characteristics. If I want Jesus to relate and draw near to me, if I want him to speak of me in the similar ways that he spoke of her, I need to have those similar characteristics. And though Jesus spoke a lot about the poor, and we should, as Christians, have a heart for the poor and to be drawn to the poor, I don't believe that was, well, I'm going to take a different piece, a different side in this one. I'm not sure that's what he was highlighting was her poverty per se. I think what he was highlighting and the person that he's drawn to most is the person who recognizes the costliness of following him and says it's worth the cost. That Jesus most relates to the person who says, I'm willing to give absolutely everything that there is to Jesus because he is worthy of it. And that it costs them something. Most of us, and Jesus even said it here, he said, most people give out of the margins. Most people give in such a way. And when I say most people, I'm included in the most people. So I don't want you to think that I'm standing up here going, well, McCutcheon's different from everybody else, and he's up there and doing his stuff. No. When we give our tithe and our offerings to be it to missions and offering, and by the way, just as a distinction, the tithe is the first 10%, uh, the first fruit uh, given to God. And offering that we speak of, and offering is the giving up and above the tithe that's sacrificial to, for instance, to world missions uh, or to the impacting uh, initiative and to other things. So we give our tithes and offerings to the Lord. But guess what I'm going back to today? I, I got a son home from college, uh, and so we're going back, and we're going to feast we're going to eat a lot of food and celebrate the fact that he's home because what we gave today wasn't all that we have. And you guys are going to go home, most of you, to homes and to stuff. We haven't given to where it hurts. We said this when we were talking about taking uh, clothing down to Haiti and giving to the orphans. Most of us give the old worn out stuff. We give the stuff we don't wear anymore. Uh, it didn't cost us really anything to support and to do those things. Jesus is saying, this woman... And the person who he relates to 
really understands the costliness of following him. They understand that Jesus is all there is. Most people see Jesus as a wonderful add-on. God, we like our life. We've become convinced of eternity. We want to spend eternity with you. We need Jesus. So would you come in and would you take up residence uh, within our multifaceted, multi-roomed life? And we're going to give you one entire room. It's yours and it's all. But we really don't want it to affect all the rest of what we're doing. And so we bring Jesus in and he has some place in our lives. But what this widow was showing, she was really showing in her own simple way, I've got nothing else. I've got nothing else. And Jesus and God, most likely in her, we don't know if she'd encountered Christ, but she knew this about her faith as a good Jewish woman and as a marginalized woman. Think about who she was. Jesus gives us enough description of her. She was an impoverished widow. She had a lot going against her. One, she was a woman in a day where that meant very little in the world. Oh, and she was a widow. Her identity as a woman in that culture had to be uh, attached to a man. The story of Ruth and her desperate need for a kinsman redeemer was because she had absolutely no hope within that culture. She and Naomi were going to be cast to the sides and marginalized within their culture if they didn't have a husband, a kinsman redeemer, to come in and to take care of them because women couldn't own property. Women couldn't do any of the things they couldn't do and take care of themselves in that day and age. So she was a woman, and now she was a widow who had no hope, and she was ultimately impoverished. She was about as far marginalized as you could be in that culture, in that society. And she realized this. I have no hope, and my hope and my Savior isn't my husband because he died. My hope isn't in my children. Maybe it it seems to lead us to the fact that she must not have had sons because there's no one to take care of her. And so she goes, it couldn't be in my lineage. I have no hope in the society and the economic systems of my day, of the government programs. My hope is in nothing else. As she put those coins in, she said, my hope is fully and unabashedly in Jehovah, Jehovah, my provider, in Yahweh, my God. And that's it. And Jesus says, I relate to that woman. More than anybody else who's come to the treasury today, I relate to that woman because she understood the costliness of what it means to follow and serve God. And so the question for us today has to be this. Do we recognize the costliness of following Christ? Are we willing to allow it to cost us anything I joke, and I'm going to stop joking about it because it's to my shame as I was thinking about it and pondering it this week, that when I play golf, I always hate it when people find out that I'm a pastor. Because then all of a sudden, the confessions of sin start, and all the, I'm sorry I told you that dirty joke on the third hole, uh, and oh this, and oh that, and I just like, oh, I just wish people, no one knew I was a pastor. And I thought, Jesus is going, Bill, I came down from heaven And I suffered on your behalf. I was kind of hoping that over that four hour span of 18 holes, maybe you wouldn't be ashamed to be known as one who serves and follows me. 
Maybe if you're a young person on a college campus or on a high school campus or on an elementary school campus, that maybe Jesus is saying, it's going to cost you something to follow me, to be identified with me. It's going to cost you something. Are you willing to pay the cost? And for husbands and wives to work through and to love one another in a way that the Bible calls us to live for Christ in that way. It's costly. It's costly, parents, to love your children the way uh, God has ordained for us to love them. And children, to love and honor your parents in a way that our culture doesn't understand. And it looks foreign to them. Or how we approach our finances, or how we approach our elections, or or how we approach whatever it is that's coming up. Jesus is saying, it's going to be costly to you. Listen to some of these words of the costliness of following Jesus And the first one comes in the very next chapter in the conversation that ensues after all of this took place. In Mark chapter 13, Jesus says to considering this costliness. Be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils and you will be beaten in synagogues and you'll stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all the nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will rise, brother will deliver brother over to death, and father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. There's a costliness the standing for Jesus in the culture. In Luke 14, now the great crowds accompanied him and he turned and he said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Or in Luke chapter 9, as they were walking down the road, someone said to him, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me go and bury my father. Jesus said, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. And King David, when he was going to build an altar to the Lord on a threshing floor, which interestingly enough, If you were to study that threshing floor, became the very threshing floor that was the place where the temple ultimately was built. And the man who owned the threshing floor said to King David, I'll just give it to you. And I'll give you the oxen and I'll give you the sheep to offer to the Lord. And King David said this, no, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord, my God, that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And he gave to the Lord an offering that day. Following Christ has a cost. And Jesus relates most to the people who embrace that cost. And who say it's worth it. It is worth losing everything to gain him. 
It's worth being marginalized in society if I have him. It's worth not getting invited to some of the cool events. It's worth not getting to do and to be in and certain things. It's worth it because you have Christ. Now, as we begin to transition, I want to ask, get you to ask a question. Is it worth it to you? Is following Jesus worth it to you? Are you willing to stand with him and to bear the shame that he bore? To bear the marks that he bore? To, to receive those things possibly even in your own body and say that it's worth it because I've gained Christ. Because here's this incredible turn on it. Where was Jesus heading? He was heading to a cross in which he was saying to us, I'm worth it. Because when you acknowledge me in front of men, I will acknowledge you in front of my Father. And I'm going to a cross, and I'm going to this cross on your behalf because you're worth it to me. And that there is not one thing that you will sacrifice that I haven't first sacrificed. Are your friends going to deny you and, and think that you're crazy? So did my friends. Did your family look at you and outcast you? Well, so did my family. Were you wrongly accused when you stood for what is right? Well, so was I. Were you beaten and physically abused on behalf of my name? Well, so was I. Were you outcast? Were you accounted to be no better than the worst of the worst? Well, so was I. And I went to a cross for you. And I considered it worthwhile because I gained you at that cross. And you gained me. So when we wrestle with these things, I hope you see maybe not a cross today, but you see a table laid out for you. And as you come to this table, I want you to consider a few things. We're going to come and transition into a time of confession. Because there's probably some things we need to confess. That maybe we've said of Jesus, you're not worth it. I'd rather folks not know who I am. I'd rather just get through and then one day I'll, I'll take you, Jesus. But I don't want you to mess up what I got going on because I got a good thing going on. And Jesus is saying to you, let me come in. And I promise you, it'll be, I'm worth it in your life. And when you are outcast and when you're made fun of, and when you're not invited to the playing, or you lose a deal because you're willing to stand on your Christian principles, uh, because uh, other things happen in life, because you're willing to stand, I want you to then look up, and you're going to see in front of you one who with nail-pierced body and hands says, I'm worth it. Because you were worth it as well. So let's come to this table today. Let's confess our need of Christ today. Why don't you pray with me? Father, as we come and prepare to come to this table, would you work in our hearts? Would you lead us to repent of the things that we should repent of? Most especially the fact 
We really want Jesus, but we don't want much of a cost to it. Forgive us when we're not willing to suffer shame and loss on his sake, who was willing to suffer full shame and loss on behalf of us.